Welcome to the Mechanical Inc. podcast, a collection of conversations about the open source ecosystem. We speak with maintainers and companies that play a key role in ensuring the health and sustainability of open source today and in the future. Hey, Julia, and welcome to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Hi there. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad. Um, so I learned about you through Tara Robertson, with whom I had a conversation on a different podcast host called the Mycelium Network Podcast. And she was like, she mentioned some of the work you do. And I was like, that's super interesting. She's like, you should totally speak to to her. And I was like, I'll try my best. <laughs> and I reached out and you were like so kind from the beginning. So um, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know all of us these days are always super busy. So I'm always grateful when people take some time to have a conversation. And um, with all of that said, if you want to go ahead and give us an introduction to who you are, what you do, what gets you up in the morning. Yeah, great. Um, I'm so glad that um, Tara uh, introduced us, and I loved listening to your conversation with her. That was that was really informative and, and such a generous conversation. Um, so I'm I'm Julie uh, Stewart Lowndes. I'm a marine ecologist turned open science champion, um, and I do that now through the program I founded and direct called OpenScapes. Um, and really, I work at the I think I, I think of myself as working at the intersection of actionable environmental science, data science, and open source or open science, and really trying to um, learn from these different sort of disciplines and communities and help um, you know bring theories and practices of what works in each of them together as I mentor and empower uh, folks who are working kind of in these spaces. Um, and I can also say I, I did my um, PhD um, 11 years ago now and was focused on Humboldt squid and their migration patterns and their uh, impacts on ecosystems and fisheries and how all of that was related to climate change. So um, that was a really neat project, too. Oh, wow. That sounds super interesting. I rem remember that now that you mentioned it. This is one of the things that um, Tara mentioned as well. That's super interesting. Maybe we can dig into that a little bit more. But before we do that, um, I've heard the term open science before. I've done some reading into it. But to be honest, like if I had to explain it to somebody, I'd completely fail. So while I can explain to people what open source is, this is one of the topics that I'd love to learn more about. So if you can like, give us the, a quick like open science 101, that would be great. Sure. Yes. Um, open science is a movement um, that is ongoing to reimagine science um, and really to help share um, things like data and code and publications. So shared knowledge more openly and not have that so siloed and um, with, with limited access. Um, but it's also so it's a I think folks often think about open science as, as those products, um, those things that are open, but it's also a process. It's about um, how we share ideas, how we teach each other, how we um, communicate more openly um, as like a culture in science. And so, um, you know, we've been, I, so, you know, we, we work in this space around open science and I, I really think about this in terms of open data science as well. So 
we made a definition for that. Um, we say that open data science are the is the tooling and the people that are enabling reproducible, transparent, and inclusive practices for data intensive science. So really thinking about how you know it's it's software and it's people and culture that really um, enable us to be able to repeat and reuse previous studies and research and build from that more easily. Um, and also, you know, I think about inclusion, whether that is folks, you know, on your research team or your collaborators or people across the world who can, um, who can build off your work and, and build from your findings. Yeah, that's incredibly important. I think it's weird that it's not always been like that, but yeah, I can definitely see how that makes sense. Um, yeah. No, I think, I, I mean, I think the idea of around technology is really critical to open science because sharing research used to be really hard to do, right? You're writing documents on paper and mailing them and publishing them in small journals. And that has, that kind of legacy has, has become it so ingrained and siloed that sharing, you know, it used to be hard, you know, things changed a lot, obviously, uh, through technology, you know, then you could email people things, you could um, CC many people at once, you could distribute more easily. Um, and so I think like this open web and like the, the ability to share things more easily, distribute and amplify has is really powerful. But the the culture of science has been sort of still modeled after writing things on paper and distributing them to narrow groups. So it's like this, you know, the, the culture, or sorry, the technology enables us to share much more openly now and to leverage like principles from open source and the open web um, and all the things, you know, that I learned um, at Mozilla. And I know we, we share that Mozilla connection. Um, but I think the culture, the culture of science around, you know, the, the idea of sharing things, sharing things earlier, getting feedback earlier, um, collaborating with folks earlier around, you know, all those sort of open source principles um, are something that is this big sort of cultural piece of open science that um, that we're working towards in science. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like the Internet kind of started because of this need for researchers to share stuff more easily and then. And then the culture just never kind of caught up to that. It's interesting to think about it that way. Huh. Never thought about it. Um, I'm curious about the work you did with squids. Uh, if you don't mind digging into it a little bit more, like how did you come about that? And like what are some of the key things you, you that you took away with it? And, and the reason why I'm curious about that specifically is because I read quite a lot about I love wolves. And so I've read quite a bit about wolves. And there's this whole thing where they were reintroduced. It's, I believe it's back in the um, oh no the park's name escapes me. Gold, Yellowstone. Yellowstone, Yellowstone National they Park. Were re yep. Yeah, they were reintroduced there, and how their reintroduction completely reshaped um, the environment back to the way it used to be because there was the balance was off, and it it shows like how we need to be so careful about you know this is. This is thing that I hear about a lot where people want to essentially make mosquitoes not exist. And if you just think about how annoying a mosquito is, you're like, yeah, of course we need to. And also how many people die, like, you know, in Africa, especially from uh, malaria. 
it sounds like a good idea, but then there's this bigger question about, but what is the ecological impact of removing this one seemingly insignificant insect from the ecology? So that's that's a perspective from what what I'm thinking of is like the whole thing around wolves and then this thing about mosquitoes and then you did this stuff with squids and you you know learned like their impact and how it impacts climate change. So I'm really curious to hear more about that. Yeah, oh, this is this is such an interesting topic, and that the the story of the wolves in Yellowstone is so fascinating, and how like the the whole like river system changed when the wolves were introduced. That's so cool. Um, the our our Humboldt squid project was also really really fascinating, kind of in this lens, especially too. So. This is a species of squid that are big. They're almost as big as as I am. So they're not, you know, they're they're not your t- typical kind of calamari uh, pub squid <laughs> that you might get in a restaurant. But they're, you know, they're um, they're these bigger squid. But they are an enormous fishery. Um, so we we talk in in marine ecology. You talk about a fishery as being the the like species of an animal within an area that is fished by people essentially. So it's kind of like this, the, the community or the population of the squid in an area that's fished. Um, and that's the way we typically kind of manage these, um, these species too. Like how many can you take sustainably is, is the idea around fishery science. Um, so this, this group of Humboldt squid is a huge, is the biggest fishery in the world for squid. It's the, it's like the 12th biggest fishery globally. There's a lot of these squid in the ocean. They typically live, um, south um, in the southern Pacific off of Peru and Chile. Um, and their northern range in the, in the Pacific is up to Mexico. Um, so about, you know, a little bit above the equator. And there was about a 10-year, 15-year period where we started seeing these squid in California, in Oregon, in Washington, in Canada, and even up to Alaska. So their range was expanding in, in an incredible rate while also holding their traditional range in the south so it's just this like amazing expansion and so our questions were like like why (laughs) um but also what impact are they having on the local ecology and animals here um what which includes fisheries in california and and the us and canada um and also thinking about is this, a, could, will this become a fishery here? You know, that was a big question as well. Um, so I, there were, this was a big collaboration uh, with folks from NOAA Fisheries, which is the U.S. Um, um, administrator of, of fisheries. Um, and it was, it was really neat to me because my, my part of the research was really like natural history of this animal. Like, like, where does it go? What is it eating? Um, how fast can it swim? It was like these very basic sort of natural history questions of squid, but it was with high tech. It was like high tech natural history. We were using sensors of many kinds. We were using satellites, uh, unmanned submarines, and looking at both the data that you would collect from a squid as it swam freely in the wild, collecting data every second. You know, you can see where, how deep it is. You can you can actually see squid breathe at a second level because their movement is coupled with their breathing. They're, they're like such cool animals. <laughs> um, but, you know, trying to connect the data from an individual like that to video footage of whole schools of them and then satellite imagery of 
water temperatures at the surface. So it was it was really interesting to try to um, tackle these this question. And really, this is where I first got into data science and and coding was in order to answer these questions because I I couldn't you you can't uh, you can't answer those kind of questions without some other without some toolkit around coding. Um, you know, Excel was the only tool I knew when I started this research and I couldn't even open the the squid tag data set in Excel. So I had to kind of learn to code and, and really found the power of how much bigger the questions you can ask in science are when you're thinking in that kind of framework. Yeah, that's fascinating. Fascinating. Um, okay, so... Uh, as I said, I heard from you about Toro Roberts, and again, this connection that just doesn't escape me. It's everywhere. Somewhere Mozilla has been in, in between all these connections. It is so fascinating, because me and Toro used to work together at Mozilla, not necessarily directly, but we knew of each other, and I knew about her work, and she knew about some of the stuff I did. Um, and you have the Mozilla connection as well through this fellowship that you got for the work on OpenScapes, um, which is this initiative that you founded. And that is the next topic then that I'd love to touch on. So uh, OpenScapes, it sounds fascinating. Please tell us more. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, and you know the connection with Tara Robertson is is so is so wonderful. And I we continue to collaborate with her um, and have learned so much from her um, and with her around, particularly around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and bringing that into our work with open source and open science. Um, so maybe to to step back, um, I let's see. So I I've learned so much from Mozilla um, and that kind of web first um, open source mindset. Um, I it was I was learning about the work that Mozilla Science Lab was doing. Um, this is Abby Kubonok Mays and Stephanie Wright um, and many others. Um, uh, uh, Caitlin Therney. Um, so I, it was really interesting because I, you know, I, I came into this world through through the R programming language. Um, this was open source. This is an open source computing language, and that, and I, after I finished my Squid work, I switched to R and kind of learned it about code and reusing other people's code and asking, you know, we're interfacing with developers and asking people questions. And so when I came to Mozilla, I I kind of thought. I knew like what open was because I had, was participating in this kind of open data science um, piece. And it was really fascinating with Mozilla to learn like, oh, open science is actually much broader. You know, it's not just the code. It's like thinking about open like hypothesis to open publishing, you know, and open funders funding and this whole spectrum of open. It was so interesting. And then at Mozilla, like learning that open science is just one piece of a broader open movement, you know, open government, open healthcare, um, disinformation, uh, you know, all of this whole scope. So it was just phenomenal to, to learn um, and kind of have that broader mind, you know, mindset and awareness and see those connections. Um, so I, I got the Mozilla Fellowship in 2018 with kind of the the feeling and vision of OpenScapes, you know, I I had found 
through the R community that open science and open source was so powerful for not only my thinking and my broader questions in science, but also the idea that it's as it's it's as easy for me to publish a website with my results as it is to keep a PDF of it on my computer, you know, like the, just that like power and like, you know, we started, um, you know, instead of emailing collaborators, word documents, we would send them a single URL and always keep that the most up to date. And it was just like this phenomenal mindset shift. So that's kind of what I brought to the Mozilla fellowship. And, but I didn't quite know what it would, what I would do, like, what, what's, what's the thing. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was learning with um, Abby Kabonok Mays and her Mozilla open leaders program. I'm, I'm, um, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with the open leaders program? It's um, so funny. Funny. You should mention that. Um, I worked with Abby on that as the person you always join the cohorts to talk about open source <laughs> and tell people amazing. basically how, how, <laughs> how to run a successful open source project, what things are to be careful careful for and how, you know, diversity, inclusion, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I probably just didn't join the cohort that you were on <laughs> just by chance. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. That's so cool you worked with her. And then, yeah, what a chance, like, missed <laughs> moment. Yeah, um, yeah. That, her, her, that program was so transformational for me. Um, I learned so much through... Um, you know, I, I designed OpenScapes through that pro through that program using the Open Canvas, thinking through community and um, codes of conduct, and and just the whole mindset around Open. Um, and then I, the architecture of the Mozilla Open Leaders program is what I eventually, you know, forked to create OpenScapes. Like I was like this this cohort based remote. Um, program where you bring your own project and get guidance on thinking through its design and what it needs but with the with this really you know thoughtful um sort of scaffolding and um teaching around open source like that's what i would like to do with other marine ecologists around open data science like so i i've kind of taken the I forked that <laughs> Mozilla Open Leaders uh, structure and now use that to work with research teams around open data science and environmental science. Fascinating. So um, the interesting thing also about Abby is that she's no longer at the foundation. She's over at GitHub. Um, I'm still in contact with her there and she's on the open source team there and she works on things, among other things, the GitHub Accelerator, which is very much has very much some of the same feelings as the open leaders thing. Also, this idea of taking an open source project that has got some momentum behind it and putting them through a 10 week, uh, essentially course where you get paid, uh, you get like a decent stipend, like $20,000. And um, you also get access to people who've been doing open source for a long time. So it's very, very similar. So it's very interesting that, you know, she's moved over there and she's kind of still doing the same kind of thing. Amazing. That Amazing. is so cool. And She is so awesome. <laughs> it is. She's amazing. And I, did, I had no idea, but I had, a, um, I think, the second episode, or maybe it was the first episode of the Mechanical Link podcast. I can't remember. 
Uh, no, I think it was the second one. I spoke to her and Nathri from uh, GitHub, and we talked about like the GitHub Accelerator, among other things. And that's where I learned that Abby actually kind of did work in open science for some time because she was working on cancer research because her grandmother passed away from cancer. And she was getting like, she didn't like how a lot of the things were geared towards profit. Um, and therefore, a lot of things that actually showed promise was not pursued because there wasn't money to be made. And that like really went against everything that she was trying to do. And that's how she got involved with open science, open source programming. Like I had no idea. So that was fascinating to learn that about her. And it made so much sense then when I, I the work she was doing at the foundation. Yeah, small world. Wow. Um, yeah. So yeah. as you mentioned, OpenScapes being like a fork of essentially like open leaders and how you're working with this. So it's on GitHub. <laughs> Another way this is all interlinked. Um, so I, I have, I've had a quick look at the, the organization on, on GitHub and there's quite a couple of projects. There's, there's a special one that's uh, around a lot of teaching material. So I'm curious, in terms of the projects you have there, is there any ways for people to get involved? Like what is the kind of help you would need, you do need from the community and, you know, anything like that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's such a great um, question. So yes, um, everything we do is on GitHub and our, primarily, I think it's it's teaching resources, community engagement, um, you know, it's, it's a space for folks to learn and reuse, which is, um, and, and fork themselves, which is really awesome. I mean, I think, you know, GitHub and then also um, from the R, community um our markdown is is a tool that we use to build websites and and now have shifted to quarto as that's emerged but you know that kind of again that kind of web first thinking was such a huge part of the design of openscapes to begin with so the the website is you know made in r published through github our main curriculum um and documentation are the same these are like you know, ebook looking things that are built with R and, and published on GitHub. Um, and then uh, there's other projects like um, our, our collaborator, Sean Cross, has built an R package to help us automate a lot of the teaching, the, the sort of facilitation resources that we use in each teaching lesson. Um, so that's, that's in there as well. Um, I think, you know, there, I, I think though too, the, the OpenScape's GitHub organization is is kind of the, yeah, a lot of documentation and teaching resources. And there's other places where the OpenScape's community are building things for their research. And so there's other places that um, folks could get involved with too. There's the, the NASA-OpenScape's GitHub organization. And there's also the it's it's called nymphs-openscapes github nmfs that's the noaa fisheries github organization these are places where um nasa and noaa fisheries researchers are like building packages to use in their in their research and um and you know writing figuring out how to do automated reports that are templated in the way the government needs them to be but still underlying with reproducibility and open source tools um so there's a lot of places to, um, to like to to look through. Um, I'd say the main 
contribution it would be to to reuse and amplify um to share these resources with others um and then you know as you're as you're sort of reading through them if there's other contributions to create to to make you know we're um we always love pull requests or, or or github issues about things you see but that's something that's actually emerged for me quite a bit through this work in the last few years um is that reusing these um reusing is such a big part of open source and open science. Like it's not only about putting stuff out there, it's about reusing other things, iterating them, you know, strengthening them, helping them get more use so that less people are spending their time reinventing. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been a big, a big theme here. So in terms of the teaching material, who are the people that you which you teach through OpenScapes and what kind of things do you teach? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is great. Um, I should also say to my, um, my, uh, all this work is a collaborative effort and my partner, Aaron Robinson uh, has designed and scaled and implemented so much of these principles too. So I, I need to particularly owe so much learning to Aaron Robinson. Um, but yes, yeah, so we, we work primarily with environmental and earth science research teams. So these are folks that, um, and, and we work with academic and government and nonprofit groups. So this might be a, a team of um, an academic lab group where there's a faculty member who's a marine ecologist and their postdocs and grad students and techs. It can also be, we work with um, folks at, at NOAA Fisheries and NASA. So these are teams that might be comprised of um, user um, needs staff um, around open source software. Um, it could also be a team that is creating a fisheries report annually and thinking about how to have the person in charge of the data have a better workflow that's, um, that includes um, folks who are writing the report and and finalizing the formatting and figures and and managing the whole project. So it's really the teams are really diverse. Like as, as um, we, we, I, I was going to say, as you might expect from like the Mozilla Open Leaders design, you know, it's like what who who's interested in in learning how to how to how to do a little bit better with the way that their workflows are going around around these um, environmental and earth projects. Um, so what we do is we, we teach, um, our curriculum covers um, topics that are really designed to be useful no matter where you are in your career or your data science journey or your open science journey. Um, we teach um, ideas around um, data strategies for future us and coding strategies for future us. So this is bringing in this this mindset that these things aren't only on your own computer. They're not only for your deliverable, but like how can you design everything you do to be thinking about like your team in the future or someone that might join your team in the future. So thinking about kind of how to design the, like an onboarding mentality through into your code and your documentation and your whole workflow. Um, we also focus a lot on, we have a whole unit on psychological safety and 
um, team culture. Um, and so bring in that, that actually, that lesson was uh, designed by Tara Robertson as she worked with some of our teams early on and was like this, you know, this is kind of woven throughout the program, but let's create a full unit on this to uh, share like research and language and examples around why psychological safety is so important for teams. And that's, that's one of the most, um, I think, compelling lessons in the whole program is on psychological safety. Um, we also, the, so it, the, the format is very discussion uh, is, is, is short lessons and then discussion based. Um, so it's not a, it's not a webinar and it's not like a hands-on coding workshop, but um, the one thing we do do hands-on is we all create GitHub accounts together and publish, we practice committing and publishing um, from the browser and we practice making issues and collaborating and having conversations and using project boards together also from the browser. So it's this um, trying to fit you know, trying to fill a need that we that we that we've seen throughout our you know that Aaron and I have both seen throughout our um, experiences in this space, um, and not be redundant, but really complement other coding workshops or you know GitHub tutorials types of things. Yeah, that's fascinating, and I've actually um, we've in, I've, I've encountered the same thing that oftentimes people don't think about this, but one of the, I don't know if it's like, uh, one of the things that block a lot of people from contributing to open source is literally a lack of knowledge of how to use Git and GitHub. Um, and it's, it's strange that there aren't more resources that really just show you what's the bare minimum you need to get by. Cause, cause Git is super complicated, but you don't need to know all of it to make contributions. Um, and in fact, these with GitHub, how it's evolved over the years, there's a heck of a lot you can do without even having to open up a terminal. So, you know, and even if you're on your machine and you are, for example, not on the website, if you use the GitHub desktop app, like that again makes so many things so much simpler. But it's interesting that there isn't more content geared towards specifically people that's new to that. I'm working on something like that at the moment, but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that there isn't more about this because it's often the one thing that's blocking people. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to hear more about your um, your work around GitHub. We, um, my colleague and I, uh, Allison Horst, we made an illustrated series to sort of welcome folks to what GitHub could do. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll send it. I don't see a way to send it to you right now. I'll send it to you afterwards. Um, or if you can search for GitHub illustrated series, OpenScapes. Um, but yeah, so I, I, cause I think, you know, the, the main need that we see in environment with environmental scientists is like a, a, a welcome to GitHub and a welcome to coding. Like we think of sort of meeting folks at the trailhead of a, like about to enter a big landscape of open science and, and sort of having that moment to sort of orient to what's there and that, and that it's, it's for, it's for us as environmental scientists. Um, you know, coding and software is, is not a 
part of our formal education. And so people kind of pick up what they need along the way, you know, and are kind of, I mean, I, I can speak from my own experience, are are pretty like nervous that they're doing it wrong and like not wanting to say out loud or share because it's embarrassing. And, and there's this sense that somehow everyone else learned how to code and has it figured out and knows GitHub and all these things, but like I missed it. You know, there's this like sense that everyone's kind of feeling. Um, so in addition to the need to, you know, formalize this in education and, and have, you know, recognize that, you know, science requires code in 2023 and how can we, you know, teach and support students. But um, it's also about upskilling the workforce um, and providing opportunities for folks in current, you know, government jobs, because, you know, we need, you know, sort of opportunities to learn this stuff and experiment and tinker and make a merge conflict and spend, you know, half an hour figuring it out with a colleague, you know, like that's part of, of science and government work, right, you know, in, in this space right now and, and, and um, supporting colleagues in that way is, is, um, is, re is really critical. Yeah. Yeah, agree. Um, so kind of moving towards a topic that you sort of started speaking about um, and mentioned, but I wanted to dig deeper into, um, yeah, I'm going to take them in the order I had them planned. So um, the climate crisis, um, it's a big topic. And so I find it fascinating that it's, I don't know, as low priority as it is. I I find it hard to understand, and maybe, maybe it isn't, but it it sure it sure feels like it is. Um, if we looked at the way the world came together during COVID, it's fascinating that that hasn't already happened around climate. So, um, again, it's a very broad topic. So feel free to dive as deep as you want, or stay as shallow as, as you need. Um, but just generally, what are your thoughts around this? Um, what projects and initiatives do you know of that is that you think people should be aware of and get involved in because they really um, are meaningful? Um, and then, yeah, I'll let you do, do that first and then we'll, we'll touch on, on another topic. Okay. Yes. Um... I, I totally agree uh, that the climate crisis is is huge and is not sort of we don't hear about it as much. It's not front of mind and and is action actionable like in our daily lives as much. Um, we're really inspired by um, the All We Can Save project and movement. This is a a book and a website and a movement. Um, the book is edited by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine Wilkinson, and it's a um, their first book was focused on uh, women climate leaders in the U.S. and the book is vignettes and stories of like hope and struggle and action and like solutions um, to climate. Um, so we try to bring that kind of um, energy and hope and like, you know, love um, to the work we do with environmental scientists around data science and, and open source. Um, 
these are the, the folks that we work with are just phenomenal people. You know, they, they're dedicating their careers to contributing to climate solutions of all kinds, whether that's thinking about, you know, fisheries management and food sources and livelihoods of fishermen and, fishermen and communities, or whether it's thinking about drought on broad, broad scales. Um, and so I think one of the biggest things we try to keep in mind is helping connect those, you know, those, these are folks, you know, these are scientists, like, with these big motivations about climate solutions and their daily activities are often feeling really stuck. You know, it's like version 5.xls, you know, in a forwarded email thread, like that's your daily struggle is not like meeting that bigger moment of, you know, that bigger movement and ideals around climate change. So we're trying to help, you know, provide not only tools and strategies to make those daily, you know, coding open source challenges easier, but help folks connect that to, you know, motivate those daily activities to climate change. Like, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to solve climate change if we have this, you know, six, (laughs) six level email thread about this one data file version, you know, like, how can we think about shifting that to, like, how can we expect there's a better way, and then have agency to, to change that better way. And I think that kind of mindset in your daily work in, you know, code and, and, um, and open source can also translate to daily, you know, that that same action outside of work and getting more involved with your communities, um, being inspired by um, global movements around climate change and really kind of having that motivation and that um, agency that like these little things we do make a, you know, combine to make a big change. So it's, you know, it's not waiting or thinking that like there will be one big thing that will change things. It's about like thinking that these, this is many little things and there are little things that I can do kind of immediately across my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about programming. Um, so I, I remember something that was quite a hot topic at some point was the, f- the effect of all those crypto mining that was going on. And the immense amounts of electricity that that required um, to do this stuff. And so uh, a lot of people that was against crypto was often against it because of that. There's also other reasons. Um, there's ethical reasons. There's exclusionary reasons for that. But, you know, one of the things was was that, was the fact that there was these massive server farms with full with GPUs just chugging away and using sources of power that was more often than not coal and things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there's many other things in the software industry that we don't actually know because it's not talked about. It's not, it's not brought to the fore um, of things that use incredible amount of, of energy. And that's actually caused contributing to this whole problem in a big way. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, for example, now wondering about this whole thing about uh, machine learning that's just taken over conversation mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, how much that is, how is, how much that is different from the whole 
crypto thing. Um, because I know that these, these things need a bunch of GPU. It needs a lot of GPUs to be able to do all that data parsing. Um, so I'm wondering like how much of that contributes to this and it's just not talked about because there's a lot of money in it. Um, but there is this foundation called the Green Software Foundation. Um, and they're going to, in the first quarter of this, so I guess before the end of March, they are going to bring out their green software report, which I'm super looking forward to, to have a read. Well, looking forward to, but, um, hopefully it's not too negative. Um, are you aware of any of these things inside the whole software movement? Um, any initiatives you know about? Are you aware of the Green Software Foundation specifically? Um, I, it's a super fascinating, um, and important, uh, area and I, I wasn't familiar with the green software foundation so I, thank you for sharing that I, I was looking into that before we we chatted and i am looking forward to that report too do you think things like what microsoft for example have done um with windows 11 and i just recently read about xbox um so they call it they made it carbon aware so the idea is that it will batch certain things to do it as far as i understand it to do certain data-heavy or energy-heavy processes at a time of day when generally there isn't a high demand. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something that's even effective? Or is it just like moving things around and in the end of the day, now instead of having a lot of energy consumed during one period, it's just spread throughout the day, but the amount of energy you consume doesn't actually reduce. Is there anything like, does this make any sense? Or do you have other ideas that could maybe be any, be more beneficial? Yeah, it's a really good question. I hadn't, I, I didn't know that level of, of detail about moving the, the timing. Um, I, I'm less familiar um, with, with kind of the, those strategies. Um, I think we, we think a lot more about like who's included to participate in these activities, whether it's, you know, Bitcoin or or Cloud G or Chat GPT or or coding at all or open science at all, and I think where it comes down to like, when would folks have had the opportunity to learn these skills? They're often learned, you know, on the side outside of your school or outside of your work, so that that you know means that you you don't have other obligations for that time and you can put it towards learning. Um, and that excludes a whole lot of people. Um, and then there's also the, that, that sense of welcome as well. Like, you know, I, I, we work with folks like amazing environmental scientists across career stages, right? These folks have been, they might've been working in R for years and are, don't, I don't think of themselves as a data scientist or don't think that, like GitHub is for them um, because they don't identify as a like hardcore hardcore software developer that um, that they might interpret um, as that's who GitHub is for. So I think that um, in addition to whatever tech technical or um, sort of policy level ways we're thinking about, you know, shifting energy and and away from coal and all of that i think also always thinking about who's participating and who's included and empowered in these spaces is really key yeah very true so talking about another initiative um the carbon almanac i don't know if you are aware of that one i know seth I godin is heavily involved in that i'm not even sure if he started it 
Um, it's also a book and a movement. I'm still, I, I, I still need to read the book, but I was wondering if you were aware of the Corbin Almanac. I'm not. No, another, that's another awesome uh, thing that I'll follow up with um, following this conversation. Yeah. It sounds really interesting. I really need to dig into it um, just because I'm, I'm super, that's like one of the things I'm really, really uh, worried about. Um, but worry doesn't save, doesn't change anything. Um, so we need to do something practical, you know, having, having kids and, and looking at them and seeing the concern, fear they have about their future. Um, I mean, in general, I would have cared about this, but that just brings it home, you know, makes it real when yep. you speak to your kids and they're like, we're really worried about what's there going to be for us. Like, you know, when, when, when you think about like, what's the point of starting a career? The earth might not be around long enough for me to do anything worthwhile anyway. That's hard to hear. That's really hard to mm -hmm. hear. Um, and looking at people like, um, Greta Thunberg, who, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, some people, I'm sure that everything she does is nobody's perfect, right? So everybody makes mistakes and says the wrong thing. But I think she, she started this whole thing from a, a place of real fear. And I think where it became really real for me, um, is the documentary that was made. And there's this point in the documentary where she's on the sailboat where they're going to New York. And she mm -hmm. just breaks down crying and she's like, this is all wrong. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to do this. I should be back mm -hmm. home in my warm and cozy house with my dog and doing my schoolwork. I shouldn't be on this boat wanting to throw up and stuff like that. And I was like, that is yeah. so true. That is so, so true. Um, and so, you know, all of that kind of stuff makes me just grasp at things, but then, like you, you, you previously mentioned this idea of disinformation, and that is such a big problem that they, we don't have a solution for yet. And the scary thing with all these um, machine learning things that's being bolted onto everything that people can possibly bolt it onto is that it's acknowledged that they are confidently wrong often, and. So we have this whole new fake news generation machine that people are asking right. questions and it's answering them. And they have, and how many people know? Like, I think it's, it's one of those scenarios again where I think a lot of people that use this technology is not aware of the fact that these things are confidently wrong and they're taking these things mm -hmm. at face value. And, and mm -hmm. the problem now, of course, is these things don't even cite their resources. So it's not even right there in front of you to be able to go and right. double check. It's up to you right. to know that, I don't know, that sounds a little fishy. Let me go do some additional research. I don't know what, what your thoughts are around all of that rant yeah. of mine <laughs> yeah no 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 i am um, something that i've just learned about um is kate rayworth's work around donut economics have you heard of that it's it's okay. it sounds familiar yeah it's the idea that the whole that and this is i think this speaks to like an underlying theme here around climate is um it speaks to the idea that our economy the way we think about economics is all wrong. Like growth, 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 growth is not sustainable, right? There's no other system in the natural world that doesn't destroy itself with too much growth or destroy its system or its host 
into with too much growth. Um, and so instead, so she presents the idea of donut economics where um, the inner ring of the donut is the, um, is the like what, what humans need um, at a, per, like at a human level, um, water, food, um, shelter, peace. Um, and the outer ring of the donut are the planetary boundaries that we cannot exceed, like pollution, species loss, and climate. And we and our our economics should fit within that donut. We shouldn't undershoot the human needs, and we shouldn't overshoot these planetary boundaries. And if we think of that as the economics model, and not that supply and demand and growth are the the pictures that we use. Um, we can, we can, um, we can like reimagine economics and 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 the, and these um, boundaries for climate change, and I think that's it's so fascinating to to hear her talk about this, um, and also to talk about examples of you know cities redesigning their infrastructure around this principle and and beyond. Um, so I'm I'm getting interested in how that can play into more of our thinking and work around open source and, and data science um, with, uh, with, with the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's all, like they say, it's all connected. Um, I don't think we can double down on any one thing and expect that it will be the panacea for, for all our problems. I think we all, we grasp to that because it's a lovely idea um, and it feels like there's a chance to win if you can identify this one thing. It's like people were, were heavily focused on, let's just plant as many trees as possible and it'll be all be fine. And then it was like, well, um, that don't not do that. But for example, I recently learned that, um, peat moss and these big peat moss, I can't remember what they call it, but did you get in places like Scotland and Ireland? They lock up way more CO2 than trees and they're being destroyed at an incredible rate in, in those countries because of just farming and um, expansion, like too many people living there. So, you know, again, it shows you that there isn't just this one thing, there's these multiple things and economics definitely plays a role because like I said, you know, mm -hmm. with a lot of these things, there's so much money locked up in coal that people push mm -hmm. back when you say, no, don't build another coal power plant, build like solar farms or wind farms or whatever the case may be. It's like, but that's not where the money is. And so we need to rethink um, yeah. this whole growth to all end thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'd love too to see the like folks who are, you know, in, in Scotland or Ireland with the peat moss trying to decide what steps to take like if they had that that sort of um reuse who else has been in this situation what other options are there if they like that kind of mindset and that kind of access to learning that you know a community in um, you know across the world <laughs> had a similar situation or different circumstances but they you know use these principles and were able to think of it that way if there was kind of that um sharing of information and that kind of mindset that you're like, you don't have to figure this out alone. You don't have to start from scratch. And 
and I'm sure there is a, to some degree that happening already, but I, you know, this, this idea of what open source and open science and open knowledge um, on the open web, you know, with, you know, citations and fact checking, <laughs> um, that that can actually like help us um, tackle these challenges together um, so that it is kind of these, these like smaller daily efforts that really do make these, these big changes together. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, of misinformation, are there any, um, so when you want to fact check something, are there some resources that you rely upon that you can like suggest for other people? If you, like my daughter, for example, she reads up quite a lot about climate. Um, and mm -hmm. oftentimes she's like, I've read this thing, but then I read this thing here. And I'm not so sure which of the two is the one I should believe. Like for people like that who are curious about these things, are there any like resources that one can point them to that's trustworthy? Yeah, um, I really like um, Project Drawdown, um, which is a um, global project to yeah have have examples in different um, arenas and actionable um, practices in different arenas to to draw down carbon. Um, so there's, they have a, a book and many web resources that, um, is, is one place I go to learn, um, and also kind of look to them on, um, you know, Twitter or Mastodon to see kind of what they're talking about, um, on a sort of daily level. So yeah, they're, they're a good group project drawdown. Cool. Um, so yeah. in general for like kids, teenagers, young adults, um, what are some of the ways that they can get involved in, in like the type of work that you do and then work around climate? Like what is some good avenues for them? Um, I'm also thinking about kids that homeschool, kids that don't have access to, you know, get to some of the universities that has a natural on-ramp to these things. So if you're somebody, let's say in South Africa and you're like, and you're 19 and you're thinking, I want to do something with my life that's meaningful and that, that, works towards solutions for this like what are some good ways for them to get involved um that's a great question um i mean i'd i'd um i think that the our openscapes resources around sort of getting this um developing this mindset around open and reuse and how code and open source can connect with climate can be a place to start um and from there i think you know, being, you know, following your curiosity. Um, like I think there's, there's really interesting examples of community efforts um, happening that are sort of connected or that are, you know, have an online presence or connected to like, on, like internet open source um, in different ways. And that can be a way to not only learn about projects that are of interest, but also how to develop skills, whether technical on the internet or, or sort of on the ground skills to, to contribute there. Um, yeah, I think that's not, you know, that's still a very broad answer, but that kind of inner, that like, I think connecting local on the ground climate action with sort of open source um, code 
is is like a really rich place to to see an intersection and to um and to kind of follow both at the same time as as folks are looking into these things yeah. Um, so the NASA's Earth Data Cloud Cookbook. This is something that you link from your GitHub profile. Um, I like. I was gonna like, duh, that NASA is involved in all of these things. Of course they are. But um, now, if a lot of people hear this, they immediately gonna think cloud as in cloud computing. And I'm not sure. Maybe it does play a role in that. But um, can you tell us more about the this Earth Data Cookbook? Yes. Um, so yeah, so we have a project with NASA Earth Data, which is a super exciting project with a lot of amazing folks. Um, so I, I like to preface this, you know, when, when you think of a NASA, you might think of outer space, um, which is what I certainly think about. Um, but NASA also collects a, like an enormous amount of data about our Earth. Um, so that we can study climate uh, or global level, you know, climate patterns, drought, um, looking at agriculture, there's and, and oceans, ice, there's so many different things that folks use NASA Earth data for. Um, and the data from those satellites traditionally have been freely available from 12 different data centers in the United States. Um, so that you go to one place for your ice data, you go to another place for your um, land data. Um, but after many, many years of planning and effort, NASA is moving all of that data to the cloud so that folks won't need to go to, to 12 different places for those data sets, but can access it all from the cloud. So that is the cloud, um, <laughs> the like the internet cloud. Um, but what that means is that people who are accessing those data are going to need to move their compute to the cloud as well. So sort of away from, potentially away from a download local computer model and towards a cloud computing model. And so there's a lot of skills to, that are involved with, with cloud computing. Um, not to, you know, not only, um, well, so there's there's a lot of different pieces there. So what, what this NASA Earth Data um, Cloud Cookbook is, this is a collaboration with um, staff across these 12 data, data centers that we've been working with that are part of the NASA OpenScapes Mentors community. And they are coming together to, first of all, design teaching resources to help researchers make this transition. But in, in doing so, like they're having to learn how to do it themselves. Uh, so we're all learning how, like, what does this look like? What does cloud computing look like uh, for NASA Earth data? Um, so we were able to um, collaborate with um, 2i2c, which is a nonprofit that manages cloud infrastructure. Um, they've set up a Jupyter Hub for us. Um, we're, we're writing tutorials using Jupyter Notebooks, um, publishing them with Quarto and GitHub, and kind of designing and iterating this practice of how researchers will access this data in the cloud. Um, and it's just been such an amazing, I mean, it's, it's an ongoing and amazing project to really um, learn and design together as 
as we've also been teaching researchers and then learning from those researchers um, how to how to support um, this transition to the cloud. That's fascinating. <clears throat> I would love to know if there's any data that comes out of that about um, the impact of cloud computing on environment and how one can reduce that. Um, and again, publish that somewhere so that you can then share that with like these big cloud providers and try and identify the players that is doing this responsibly so that people can, you know, they say, um, <clears throat> what is that thing? Uh, speak with your wallet? No, that's not the right term. Vote with your wallet. So it's like spend money where <clears throat> at people that you agree with, you know. So if you don't agree with company X, then don't buy products from them. Because if you buy products from them, you're voting with your wallet and they're going to keep doing it. So, you know, if you identify that, for example, DigitalOcean does this really well, then, you know, vote with your wallet and host your stuff in DigitalOcean because you know that they're doing this correctly. So that'd be fascinating to, to learn if some stuff like that comes out of it. Um, <clears throat> there's so many more things we can talk about, but unfortunately time is not a thing that's infinite. So in closing, um, I would love to hear from you just like, what are your hopes for the future of our planet? And then what is the one thing that you would tell everybody to do that I can do to improve their lives and possibly the lives of others? Yeah. Um, I think my, you know, my vision of the, the planet is um, that we're, we're living sustainably <laughs> um, that we, you know, I, I think it is kind of going to be sort of interconnected local activities uh, rather than, um, you know, local efforts that make sense to place and communities that are learning from each other connected through through tech and open source but really um you know even even just thinking about like you know eating seasonally local farmers markets rather than um complete you know global agriculture um is is maybe one example of that but um i think you know overlapping these these ideas and principles from, you know, from economics, from um, community building, from social justice movements, from open source, you know, layering all these lessons learned so that we can um, be connected and learn and, and live sustainably within that kind of donut <laughs> is, is kind of the way I think about it. Um, and then the one thing I think that everybody can do is is, is, is approach all these things with kindness, um, kind of giving ourselves and each other a bit of grace as we go forward, but, you know, not, you know, th that also means though, like helping, you know, stand up for each other, standing up for what's right. Um, but really, you know, having empathy with each other at, you know, um, whether that's in what we're the idea that we can all learn from each other and help each other. If kind of, we build that kind of empathy and trust. And I think that starts with kindness. Yeah. Trust, trust is so key to everything. And I think we see it daily in our work. As soon as trust is lost, the working relationship becomes so much harder to manage. Um, and I think especially in our remote world now, uh, trust is so key because 
you know, where previously people could see, I see John over there sitting there by a desk, he must be working. Now that, you know, you have to trust that the person is doing their work, even though you can't necessarily see them, which I know for a lot of people was really, really hard when, when we moved there. So that's that's definitely key, I think. I know I said that was the last question, but while you were talking, I was thinking of some, something else. With all the work that you've done, like all the research, all the people you've worked with, all of this kind of stuff, is there something that you've seen or encountered that has had like a massive impact on you and maybe on you personally, but then also that then has a large impact on the world that many people might not even be aware of? Um, that's a big question. I've learned so much. This could be a whole nother <laughs> conversation. Um, one thing I think that keeps coming up and like relearning is the idea of slowing down to speed up. And I think, you know, I, I've braiding sweetgrass, um, by, uh, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer is, is just a beautiful, um, kind of it's a beautiful book about indigenous knowledge um science and botany um and the teachings of plants and and that there there's themes in there that resonate with our work where this idea of slowing down to speed up the idea of if we want to um tackle these big challenges like we've got the technology at our fingertips but like let's slow down to to make sure everyone's included in using that in 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 um and using that technology as they need to so that we can all kind of interoperate more easily together um so we yeah i think part of that slowing down this practice that we help teams um incorporate into their into their work is to, you know to have scheduled meetings together where they they talk, they get to know each other as people, they build that trust, they build those real relationships, but they also start talking about like, what's working about your, your daily workflows, and what feels what feels good, what what feels hard or stuck, and like kind of emerging from that are like, oh, we could, you know, automate this with an R package. And like, we could build all these, you know, there's like all that speeding up that goes if, and, and those connecting across, um, you know, across countries and, and, and themes and stuff. But if you, if you slow down to, to build those relationships and also like reflect on where you are, like, are things feeling good to you personally and to your team? I think that's, that's been profound um, in a lot of ways. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks, Julia. This was really a good conversation. There's so much here and there's so much more, but, and I'd love to definitely stay in touch. Um, I think there's some amazing work that you do and like, thank you for everything you do and you know, everything you will do going forward. And I'm looking forward to see all the things that comes out of this and hooking up at some stage down the line and sharing some more, some more of this amazing work. So thank you so much. Thank you. You, you the same. This, this was really a, a delight and I've learned a lot. I'm looking forward to um, following your work in the future and um and also the resources you shared just in our conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Join the conversation on Discord. 
All the links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have a moment, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, as this helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you, our listeners. Thank you.